I live my body in danger as regards menacing machines as for manageable instruments. My body is everywhere. The bomb which destroys my house also damages my body insofar as the house has already an indication of my body. This is why my body always extends across the tool which it utilizes. It is at the end of the cane on which I lean and against the earth. It is at the end of the telescope which shows me the stars. It is on the chair, in the whole house, for it is my adaptation to these tools. Unquote. Jean-Paul Sartre. Good morning. This is Professor Seema Khanwalkar from the Faculty of Design, SEPT University. Thank you for inviting me to speak at, at this podcast. I am a semiotician and a social scientist by education and teach from these perspectives uh, different dimensions uh, of the built environment and design. So my lens is very clearly uh, very different from the practicing architects and practicing designers. So today I am presenting some thoughts that I have been um, working on or rather have have been building over some time. Um, what I'll be talking about is a result of a presentation that I made at the Semiotic Congress last year. So since I teach subjects like semantics, since I teach subjects like um, ecology, um, ecological exploitation of the relationship between the humans and the environment, I thought I would uh, present today the paper or my thoughts which draws from the works of James Gibson's theory of affordance, Ernst Haeckel's theory of ecology, James Jacob von Uekel's theory of ecology, Walter Benjamin's theoretical explorations of mimesis, to just name a few philosophers and thinkers. So the my thoughts try to address the association of the humans with their artifactual environments. So in a sense, I unlock an environmental perspective on the relationship of the human body with the design that gives them shelter, it affords actions, it affords movement, and affords life in itself. Different patterns of the built environment afford different behaviors and aesthetic experiences. The perception of the environment thus limit or extend the behavioral and aesthetic choices of an individual, depending on how the environment is configured, likened, imitated, or creatively reinterpreted. So it stems from an association of mimesis to architecture and how buildings shape our identity and self in profound ways that are not always evident to architects and town planners or even to those who think they are intimately familiar with the buildings they inhabit. So let me go back to Sartre's body. 
which participates in a world within which it has to be immersed and to which it has to be subjected even before it can be recognized itself before it can recognize itself as a body in sartre in sartre's terms the body is seen to exist only by virtue of the existence of the house it is only in a world that there can be a body the bomb that destroys the house does not does not destroy a model of the body but the body itself so designing across the world has always been a challenge how does one plan the built spaces when the body is mutilated or without a soul how does one restore a forgotten vision of the city is the same as the one the renowned afghan writer khalid hosseini portrayed in his novel the kite runner in 2003 describing his protagonist's childhood in the affluent neighborhood of Wazir Akbar Khan people gathered for picnics on friday in parks on the banks of the gargha lake in the gardens of pagman stunted mulberry trees that lined our street although this kabul had had stark divisions both between the rich and the poor and amongst its ethnic communities its vibrant spaces were still able to accommodate a shared social life the afghanistan of today is a war stricken post conflict country where recovery efforts have not managed to reinstate the lively streets sidewalks parks gardens and marketplaces of the past lucy huskinson in a psychoanalytical study of architecture and the mimetic self provides a useful theoretical guide to our unconscious behavior in relation to buildings and explains both how and why we are drawn to specific elements and features of architectural design she reveals how even the most uninspiring of buildings can be modified to meet our unconscious expectations and requirements of them and by the same token it explores the repercussions for our well-being when buildings fail to do so Criteria for effective architectural design have for a long time been grounded in utilitarian and aesthetic principles of function efficiency cost and visual impact it is however not self evident that architecture can be approached as a mimetic discipline because as long as mimesis is perceived as a mere copy or a literal reproduction it is not easy to understand its relationship to architecture as heidegger explains it is important to take away the notion of darstellung or representation from architecture once this is done heidegger says mimesis no longer refers to faithful copying but to general attributes of similarities and differences correspondences correspondences or affinities what are the linkages between environment human behavior human needs and fulfillment ecological semiotics an approach that has been argued by martin crampton addressing these linkages talks about a reciprocal relationship between humans and their artifactual and built environments according to this approach building and designed objects cannot be detached from our bodies referring to the chinese figure of the yin and the yang as the best example of this reciprocity crampton describes it thus 
whenever we see in our environment what we must see in order to act successfully, we see parts of ourselves. In the picture, our nose, our hands, our feet are always present if we look at a building or other artifact. This has definite consequences for the scale of our environment experience. We cannot escape from our visual environment. The visual environment of humans, according to Crampen, ranges from textures measurable in millimeters to objects measurable in meters to landscapes measurable in kilometers. According to James Gibson's proposal of ecological concepts, the human habitat is best described. I'm sorry. The human habitat is best described by its medium, its substances, and the surfaces that separate the substances from the medium. To list these, the gaseous atmosphere permits locomotion, seeing, hearing, and smelling. And then there are substances that do not permit motion through them. They are in solid or semi-solid state. All surfaces have substances that give the textural or pigment quality to them, and surfaces have a shape. The fundamental point here is that humans adapt everything to their needs. And hence, it is very important to understand the linkages between environment, human needs, and human behavior, especially when it comes to the built and designed environments. Every object is thus endowed with a sense and form by some function of human life. This approach to designed environments thus asserts that it is not the form of the chair, the vehicle, the house, etc., which is denoted by the words, but the sense of affordance, the e ecological equivalence of meaning, and to put it in one vehicle's concept, the counter-ability. But according to Gibson, all ecological ob objects are full of meaning to begin with. Surfaces, their layouts and the substances always exhibit affordance for some, someone that can be positive or negative. Thus, for a child, a, st a stair invites stepping down with fear or the edge of a bed or a cliff, a warning or an invitation to explore. Whether positive or negative, this is always accompanied by the being itself, its body, its legs, hands, nose, and so on. No human can perceive the environment without perceiving oneself within it. The design implication of this is that when we create misinformation in design, these affordances lie to us. For instance, when we bump into a glass door by mistake, and we do that so often. Different patterns of the environment afford different behaviors and aesthetic experiences. The affordances of the environment thus limit or extend the behavioral and aesthetic choices of an individual depending on how the environment is configured or perceived. A project that seems to point towards existing affordances or surfaces and challenges conventions of seating in offices that is particularly a very fascinating project, in my opinion, is the End of Sitting project by RAAAF and Barbara Weiser in 2014. 
This project was meant to confront government planners with an alternative vision in 2025 in which there are no chairs or tables but rather a landscape of inclined surfaces that support standing and leaning. This project, it can be argued, that a landscape of inclined surfaces was always there but never taken into consideration. It always existed. This project is an installation at the crossroads of visual art, architecture, philosophy and empirical science. The project was meant to bring about possibilities of radical change in working environments. Here is where a complexity arises. Affordances or the demand character of things that say, eat me, pick me up, love me, indulge in me, grasp me, etc., have two theoretical premises, one in Gestalt Psychology by Kurt Kafka that says that the demand character belongs to the realm of the phenomenological and behavioral, not to the physical or the geographical. While Gibson says that it is always there to be perceived and hence it is an invariant. The challenge then is to understand where does architecture and design belong or is it con textual and has to be left to the designed agenda. What is a designed agenda then? Is it about picking up on the existing affordances or of surfaces, mediums and substances, substances or is it about eliciting behavioral responses and asserting phenomenological character of the artifact? It can be both and produce powerful relationships with human needs. Walter Benjamin, one of the foremost thinkers of the 21st century, calls the 20th century a period of alienation, especially in relation to architecture. He likens the dwelling spaces to hotel rooms, as human beings are no longer cocooned in their dwellings and architecture no longer represents the human spirit. He believes something has been lost. This is because humans, according to him, do not recognize themselves or find meaning in their environment. This also resonates with the anthropologist of the 20th century, Mark Oge's concept of non-spaces, where we reside more and more in hotels, at airports, in transit, and hence he believes that the world that we live in today is filled with these non-spaces. The distinguishing feature of human beings is to recognize similarities with nature. Alluding to the theory of mimesis, Benjamin does not mean mere imitation as Plato would have it. Mimesis, according to Benjamin, is a constructive reinterpretation of an original which becomes a creative act in itself. Mimesis for Benjamin is a linguistic concept. It offers a way of finding meaning in the world through the discovery of similarities. These similarities then get absorbed and re-articulated in language. So to Walter <coughs> Benjamin, mimesis plays a significant role in restoring the human being to an unalienated state and in harmony with the world. What is the potential of architecture to act as a reservoir of mimesis and bring human life closer to nature is the question posed by Benjamin and many philosophers, including semioticians. 
According to Adorno, in 1984, by means of the mimetic impulse, the living being equates himself with the objects in his surroundings. This surely holds the key to exploring the question of how human beings situate themselves within their environment and points to an area in which the domain of psychoanalysis may offer crucial insights into the mechanism by which humans relate to their habitat. It begins to suggest, for example, that the way in which humans progressively feel at home in a particular building is through a process of symbolic identification with that building. They may come to identify with technological objects. This symbolic attachment is something that does not come into operation automatically. It occurs gradually. So mimesis in Adorno and Walter Benjamin is a psychoanalytical term taken from Freud that refers to a creative engagement with an object. Mimesis is a term, as Freud himself predicted, of great potential significance for aesthetics. Semioticians for no long now have lamented the fact that most environmentalists seem to have ignored the meaningful interconnection between nature and culture. Human understanding, according to them, has suffered consequences of a disconnection between cultural practices and natural processes. However, it is not so easy to integrate the semiotic processes of nature and culture. Farooq Saif, an architect and a semiotician, in an insightful work on the mutual mimesis of nature and culture, explains the obstacle in the way we perceive mimesis, which is a tenuous association of mimesis and likeness. Because of the interchangeable use of terms such as likeness and imitation in the last two centuries, mimesis as a way of thinking and representing has become alien to most contemporary scholars. It is not surprising to hear scholars talk about the so-called imitation of nature as a main artistic principle in Renaissance. A principle that was advocated by the Italian architect Leon Battista Alberti. But Alberti's concept is a call for architects to produce beautiful buildings by emulating the principle of unity observed and in the realm of nature. Architects must learn from nature and by striving to embody quasi-natural principles and while products of design hardly produce natural appearances, they lead to insights into nature. Safe insists that mimesis as a philosophical notion is much narrower and more infantile than mimesis as a representative means of cultural practices exemplified in human perceptions and actions since primeval times. Mimesis has deeper roots in humanity. Since the dawn of time, humans have shown their desire to express their thoughts and emotions through oral tradition and visual representations. The notion of mimesis is new, but the concept is not. Safe further goes on to say that prehistoric cave paintings were not mere imitations of nature. These paintings were graphic representations of magical enchantment with reality depicting the processes of nature which one can plausibly say 
were intended to go beyond the experiences of existing reality into creation of new reality and therefore influence the future outcome. In the very design of buildings, the architect may articulate the relational correspondence with the world that is embodied in the concept of mimesis. These forms may be interpreted in a similar fashion by those who experience the building, in that the mechanism by which human beings begin to feel at home in the built environment can also be seen as a mimetic one. Designed agendas in the era of modernism and after the world wars elicited behavioral responses and phenomenological assertions. But the reality of it all is quite distressing. In History and Truth, as Paul Ricker says, and I quote, the phenomenon of universalization constitute a sort of subtle destruction of the creative nucleus of great cultures, the ethical and mythical nucleus of mankind. Everywhere throughout the world one finds the same bad movie, the same slot machines, the same plastic or aluminium atrocities, the same twisting language by propaganda. It is striking how prescient rigor is today in an era of fake news and climate change. Everywhere one finds the same twisted architectural forms, the same placelessness, the same erosion of public space and social and public life, the same universal crisis of housing and the replacement of housing by speculative real estate in global cities from London, New York, Mumbai, Shanghai, Lagos, and everywhere else. And this is the crux of today's argument, to find mimesis and not likeness. One word that comes to mind is rootedness. We will explore this in the context of two important architects in India whose work can be powerfully considered mimetic as they engage with material, ecology, aesthetics, cultural symbols and their affordances of material objects. One, let the creative aesthetics flow from within, was very tactile and the other created powerful energies in the built spaces that could be experienced through the ritual sequencing that the body went through. So let me go to the, the era when modernism came to India. This was a very difficult period for Indian architects like B. V. Doshi, Charles Kuria, Achyut Kanvinde, Anantraje, Rajreval, to name a few, who were only too aware that to be modern meant to embrace an architecture and European modernism and its associated dogmas of rationalist thinking, objectivism and tabula rasa planning, with an unfettered belief in progress and technology as has been documented by several commentators on modernity in India. India recovering from colonialism with an existing legacy, legacy of tradition in arts, crafts, architecture and the city form was looking for reconciliations. Doshi's work, Balkrishna Doshi's work and legacy is a search for this reconciliation between universalism and place, rationalism and what philosopher Paul Ricker calls the mythical nucleus of humankind, 
This reconciliation, as has been documented by several uh, researchers, critics, commentators, took several decades. In Bibi Doshi's work, it involved acknowledging and reinterpreting elements from the rich traditions of Indian architecture, the courtyard, the jali, which is the screen, a layered notion of notion of enclosure ornamented very significantly the plinth or the occupied ground. The treatment of the ground as a receptacle for the celebration of life as a critical, is a critical aspect of Doshi's work. It marks a clear break from the piloti and the grid tools of Cartesian planning that favor the automobile's hegemony over the ground. That architecture can and should have a socially progressive agenda, agenda was, after all, a defining attribute of modernism, to bring design to the masses, to produce not only a new aesthetic, but also a new egalitarian order. Form thus became an instrument of reducing social inequity. It is in this initial project, project of modernity that Doshi created the Aranya Housing Project, for over 6,500 dwellings. The defining aspect of this project is incrementality, a very important ecological feature in the context of dwelling and how man or woman situates himself or herself within the environment. Users are encouraged to add rooms to the service core of their house over time. Eight demonstration houses were designed by Bividoshi to illustrate the array of available options, from one-room shelters to more elaborate homes. Today, it is a city that houses 80,000 people from different religions, castes, and a cohesion, a social cohesion, enabled through the project plan itself. Doshi's projects have been characterized by tactile inhabitation whether it is the School of Architecture in 1972, his office building Sangat, built in 1980, or the Hussein Doshi Gufa in 1990. Though he was a product of high modernism, having worked with Le Corbusier in Paris, gradually Doshi sought a distinct shift and eventually he established landscape as the primary architectural mediator where ground and building are inseparable and symbiotic. His childlike play with Indian materials, craftsmen and the arts can be seen in Sangat, roughly translated as cooperation, which is an architecture of multi multiplicity, tactility, ornament and myth. And I quote, the building is perceived as a rich topography of occupiable plinths culminating in vaulted porcelain mosaic roof forms that frame the sky. When the project was under construction, Doshi encouraged local craftsmen to leave their own creations in the landscape of the building, giving agency to the artisans. The waste of chiseled stone chips becomes an incredibly beautiful embellishment within the landscape. Upon entering the premises, you enter a haven, a world within a world. Programmatically, the building works not just as a studio, but as a real celebration of life, a living ground for exhibitions, performances, and festivities.
The second architect I'd like to uh, pay respect to in my uh, presentation today is Charles Correa and his designed cosmology. I quote, anthropology has taught us that the world is differently defined in different places. It is not only that people have different gods and expect different postmortem fates. It is rather that the world of different people has different shapes. The very metaphysical suppositions differ. Space does not conform to Euclidean geometry. Time does not form a continuous and unidirectional flow. Causation does not conform to Aristotelian logic. Man is not differentiated from non-man or life from death as in our world. Unquote. Walter Goldschmidt. Charles Correa, the le legendary Indian architect, used the human instinct to read and resolve incom incomplete objects into a visual whole. And I, this is, I quote uh, Gautam Bhatia. Um, written in 2016. Korea's multi-sensorial exp expressions evoke powerful emotional responses by creating iconic, ironic juxtapositions of the monumental and the intimate, Euclidean and organic, cosmic and man-made. Korea worked at understanding the values of Indian culture and transposing them into the fresh foundations of modernity in India. Korea's belief coincided with Habermas that understood modernity as a consciousness of an epoch that posits itself with the past and views itself as a result of the transition from the old to the new. The sequence is a universal impulse in all human beings and in all cultures and religions. It is along this path where meanings are generated, both unique and universal, attributed it with ritualistic properties generally associated with what a believer encounters on their religion. Spiritual experiences, rhythm and repetitions are the patterns in Korea's sequences relating to the embodiment of meanings of Indianness. Korea's sequential narratives encompass a wholeness of experience built on the principles of ambiguity, continuity, complementarity and presence. He believed that our consciousness is heightened when aligned with the metamorphosis of the myths. The journey through these sequences evoked the manthanas that expand outward into the space and inward into the self. Such spaces are aligned cosmically, emerging from the earth to the sky, along with the body and spirit of the participant in that space. These sequences are a system of conceived and perceived simplicity, leading to aesthetic exp expressions born of emotions, sensations, images and thoughts. This has resulted in a composition of light, dark and shadows with movement patterns organizing itself around the center in Korea's works. It represents the forces of creation and compression in Indian myths. The center takes a mythical status because of the associational values with narratives that invoke the primal instincts as one positions oneself at the center. 
Korea's architecture is primarily seen having an organizational character and the strength of his work stemmed from an anthropological base and its ecological predisposition. Each pathway in Korea's work is seen as growing in in completely different form. Architecture, and I quote, architecture is sculpture with the gestures of human occupation. Korea's architecture in the context of this paper is an exemplary example of how built spaces and objects are acted upon. Korea imagines his built spaces as a sculpture, which is usable by human beings with doors and windows that is completed by light and air. The philosophical stance stance here is that of the kalakar, the craftsman. The presence of tradition in Indian society is a huge backdrop in his works and one feels like one is exploring the streets or squares of a village that Korea talks of, and I quote, experiencing architecture not as an object one looks at but as an energy field one moves through. There is a wonderful quote by one of the foremost anthropologists of this century, Victor Turner, on analyzing rituals. I found I could not analyze analyze rituals without studying them in a time series in relation to other events. For symbols are essentially involved in social processes whereby groups become adjusted to internal changes and adapt adapted to their external environment. From this standpoint, the ritual symbol becomes a factor in social action, a positive force in the activity field. Korea's buildings are organized as a labyrinth of courts and shaded walkways, positive and negative spaces, traversed by an ambling route. These experiences are akin to Pradakshina that encircles the Buddhist stupa and defines the Garbhagraha in Hinduism. It is the procession around the Kaaba in Mecca and the novenas circumambulating the great cathedrals and churches of Italy and Spain. It has been a quest of not one but several generations of architects from the subcontinent and the global south at large to create an ontological and literal framework for an architecture that is modern and yet rooted in place. One architect that comes to my mind is Jeffrey Baba. I would now like to uh, end my um, contemplation by saying that these are some emerging ideas on the theme of this paper. And I hope to develop it further as the attention to architecture from the perspective of semiotics, ecology, deepens and more and more of these connections are established particularly um, you know in the in the in today's times where architecture and digital technology for example uh, seem to have become new partners well that is for another talk altogether thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for inviting me goodbye